Welcome to this Crosscut Media program. I'm Steve Scher. We're calling this The Elephant in the Room is Bertha Toast. Knut Berger writes for Crosscut among his many jobs. Skip, good to see you again. Good to see you, Steve. Matt Fixie Verkirk writes occasionally for Crosscut. He's been writing about this issue because, as you told me, you're at home with tunnels. Yeah, I am at home in tunnels. I grew up with a father who was a tunneling engineer, spent a lot of time on the job sites, uh, have been around that business for a while. doesn't make me an expert, it gives me a lot of opinions. Well, that's what we all have. We're at the Zeitgeist Coffee, which is just a few blocks from uh, ground zero, or ground sinking ground zero of, uh, of the tunnel. All right, well, so I'm just starting with that. We'll just start at the big question. Is it toast? Technically, no. It this tunnel project could be completed technically, certainly. The technology exists to do it. The technology exists, but it will be extraordinarily expensive, and it will involve a level of risk that nobody has, at least the key players, haven't publicly acknowledged all along the way. All right, let's, let's come back to technical. Politically, toast? No, I, I actually think politically, uh, the uh, the the calculation will be to finish it and uh, you know stick various people will get stuck with the bill the bill will be astronomical uh, but they'll be fighting for 25 or 30 years over who who pays it uh, it'll 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 be your it'll be your kids or grandkids that are uh, kind of like well what what were they thinking just just about the time when we're finally getting into the tunnel that's when they'll be figuring out how, who's paying for it all right, so, so just in case people have been in a tunnel uh, for the past few years, Seattle voters, well, we'll get to that. But Seattle and the state are building a tunnel underneath downtown to replace the viaduct. Uh, Bertha, the tunneling machine on this end, the south end of the tunnel, is stuck. The uh, Seattle Tunnel Partners, which is a big uh, multinational conglomerate that are building this, are trying to uh, unstuck it by digging a big pit from which they will extract the drilling head and repair it, they hope. And uh, what are we, a year? How, how long have we been stalled now? A, a year. It, it's a year. Yeah, it's been a year. So we're stalled a year. We don't know when we'll be unstalled. We don't know what it will cost, who will pay. And now there seems to be some subsidence underneath the viaduct. There doesn't seem to be. There is subsidence underneath the viaduct. And some buildings are shrinking. So let's just a little bit of a reminder and we're not saying I told you so, but a little bit of a reminder. What were you writing when you were thinking about this, Matt, 2009? Well, what I, when I began looking at this in 2009, the main point that struck me was this is a moonshot project. It is super complicated ground. The conditions are super complicated. The margin of error is tiny because you have a historic part of a city overhead. And it didn't seem as though the discussions about the project ever recognized what a challenge it is. And, you know, big tunnel and infrastructure projects can be really cool. They're accomplished all over the world, but they're not accomplished with tiny margins of error and set budgets when a whole lot of unknowns remain unknown up front of the project. And that, I thought, was the, the problem. It was packaged with a level of certainty that technically was impossible to have. What do you remember about those those Halcyon days? Well, it's interesting because the tunnel, the deep bore tunnel, seemed to be a solution to uh, uh, gridlock of indecision, which was uh, people who wanted 
the viaduct removed and wanted a surface solution. People said, well, no, 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 you can't do that because you're going to have too much traffic down there. Uh, you had people who wanted the viaduct, the raised viaduct, rebuilt. People said, well, no, 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 you can't do that because it's a, a wall between downtown and, the, and that we, have this, we want to have this new front porch and all this development. You had original tunnel proposal was a cut and cover tunnel, which was essentially a, a waterfront trench that you could uh, dig and then you would um, have a lid on it. <clears throat> and so you could kind of have your cake and eat it too. The deep bore tunnel was a, was a proposal that satisfied a lot of people because you got a tunnel that went deeper down under everything, but you would you would be able to keep the viaduct up and open so that you didn't end up with gridlock by tearing it down and then not having anything to replace it. So you could kind of get the traffic off the viaduct onto the deep bore tunnel. Then you could tear the viaduct down and redevelop the waterfront. It's also complicated because there's so many pieces of the puzzle. I mean, there's the tunnel piece, there's the historic district piece, there's the uh, makeover of the waterfront into uh, uh, maybe a San uh, Francisco-like development of uh, more housing, high-rises, open space. Uh, So there's that economic uh, potential and property owners kind of drooling over that. (laughs) in the city, drooling over the taxes and whatnot that would generate. Um, <clears throat> and uh, there's the, the transportation piece, which is uh, how much traffic goes into the tunnel, how much stays on the surface. The tunnel is going to be tolled. Uh, one of the issues, of course, with an expensive tunnel is you can't set the tolls too high where not enough people will go through it. So where's the sweet spot? Do you have the money to cover all that? So you just had all these different uh, pieces. And then the whole thing wouldn't work unless you built a new seawall. So, and, and that's a complicated piece of technology in and of itself. And there's so many additional layers. Additional layer is the changing nature of what's happening to the Port of Seattle. You know, a big part of this argument was port traffic and freight mobility and all that stuff. And that whole world is changing rapidly as well. So the economic conditions that were used to drive this argument are also in a state of flux good case in point is this new cooperation agreement between Seattle and Tacoma to jointly manage the ports. It could be that a lot of the traffic we were expecting here will end up going through Tacoma. Um, of course, it could be the reverse, but, um, you know, the, 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 world is, the world is changing, and, and one of the problems with mega projects is sometimes the problem you're trying to solve when you started isn't an issue when, when you get to the other end. I remember, so I went back and looked at the critics. Of course, The Stranger is publishing a lot of their articles from 2009 and 10 that Dominic Holden was writing. Carrie Moon has been writing again about, you know, here's what I put out in 2009. Here's, so not, they're not being, I told you so, but they're saying these are, they, they were raising those questions. Of course, a big criticism is that there's no downtown exits for these tunnels. A lot of people are going to be on the street anyways. A lot of the, a lot of the data shows that really it's not going to help very much in terms of getting cars out of downtown because most of us use Viaduct to come into downtown. So there have been people who said from the get-go this was a bad plan. Among them, uh, a guy who got elected mayor in order to, in large part because he opposed the tunnel, though he then was forced and acceded to, I'm not going to really oppose it. But we did have a vote, right, in 2011. And you wrote an article in in Crosscut, Skip, which was basically saying that uh, it was the, I'm done with this vote, can we get on with it? Well, it's really interesting because we've had two public votes related to the viaduct. 
But it turns out, when you, when you really analyze the results, you look at the contemporary polling, and uh, you look at what specifically was on the ballot, it's really unclear what we were approving or disapproving of. We were given a choice uh, in 2007 of a preference vote, which said, do you prefer a tunnel surface solution or do you prefer a new elevated viaduct? And uh, people preferred the elevated option, uh, more of them, uh, than, the, than the other option. And uh, if you look at where the voters were, the people who wanted the elevated option, which was the quicker, cheaper uh, alternative, uh, are people who lived in neighborhoods that used uh, Highway 99 to, to get downtown. You know, so you're talking about essentially all the precincts that voted for the elevated solution were west of I-5. And uh, you, you can see there was a kind of, you know, interest there. And when people found out what the tunnel was going to cost, they got even more skeptical about it. And especially in the polling that was done in 2006-2007. So in 2011, it came back on the ballot, referendum one, it was called. It was uh, in an August primary vote, so it was a low turnout situation. And the question then was, should the city council be allowed to go ahead with uh, negotiating agreements uh, pending an EIS uh, to uh, move ahead on the project? And the voters' pamphlet specifically said, this is not a vote to approve or disapprove the tunnel. This is a procedural vote to give a signal to the city council as to whether to continue with their process or not. Seattle voted overwhelmingly to let the city council go ahead. Now, I talked with uh, pollster uh, Stuart Elway, uh, who had done polling on this subject. And he basically said, look, 30% of the people supported a tunnel surface option in 2007. By 2011, 60% of the voters voted to go ahead, you know, to let the city council proceed. That was taken as a referendum up or down on the, vi on the, on the viaduct replacement and the tunnel. But, uh, you know, Elway basically says, I think it was, if you look at the voting patterns, I think it was just a kind of, you know, get it done, break, just, just make a decision and move on. It was more of that kind of a voter frustration thing. Because otherwise you have to believe that people went from 30% to 60% in that time period. And then never happened. <laughs> Voters don't move that dramatically on the same issue in that short period of time. You know, you mentioned the critics who are, who are not saying, I told you so right now. And I think that on their part, for that collection of folks, that's actually um, a very reasonable thing to not say, I told you so right now. One, the problems still remain and the challenges are still ahead of us. There's two things that probably don't make a lot of sense right now. One is to proceed automatically on autopilot, and the other one is to celebrate an I told you so right now. I think maybe a more reasonable approach, and I would expect some of these people are going to come around to, is, okay, now we need to have numbers and timelines and try and hold Washdot and the parties a little more accountable for what the visions are for a solution from here. Because the, where they are right now, which is wait and see, we're checking, we're studying, we're finding out, our engineers are telling this, is only going to work for a little while. It won't work for the whole rest of the way through the project. What are the backups? What are the contingencies that are actually valid? Because they could get stuck again in another another 20 yards, right? If, even if they get it fixed. 
what? There, are, there are several additional risks. It's going deeper. It's in a stage where it's going deeper. The pressures of the water table increase dramatically as it goes deeper. It's going under downtown, and if you look at the diagram of the soils, what you see is a real crazy patchwork of conditions all through that area. So the behavior of the ground in the path ahead is not any more predictable uh, than it is so far. The agreements to move ahead the, uh, all are contingent on certain kinds of monitoring, and depending on what is shown, that triggers certain other things. For example, uh, one of the things we've learned uh, from uh, WashDOT's map of where the sinking is taking place is that uh, there's substantial subsidence along First Avenue. Well, there's a major sewer line that the city has that runs through there. The memorandum of agreement with the city is that if it moves more than, I think it's an inch and a half, it is consumed, assumed to be broken and will have to be replaced. Now, that, it doesn't mean it is broken, but it's most likely bent, it's most likely damaged. Uh, but, and so, you know, as, as WashDOT is reporting these numbers, these are dominoes that are falling that then the city and the other utilities that have things underneath Pioneer Square then have to look at, well, is are the gas lines okay? A letter went out this week to all the people of Pioneer Square saying, start checking your gas lines, start sniffing for rotten eggs, because you know, we haven't found anything broken. But you can bet if sewer lines are breaking, there is a risk to uh, power lines. Uh, you know, uh, uh, City Light has stuff underground. Uh, Puget Sound Energy has stuff underground. Uh, so there's kind of a domino effect, which is that even if, even if Bertha is fixed and moves ahead, it is already caused, at least on paper, damage that, uh, to infrastructure that are, is, are going to have to be repaired. Uh, and you can imagine if you have to shut down First Avenue... Uh, and uh, replace, you know, a, a, a sewer line, you're not going to be putting uh, 19th century technology back into the ground. Uh, you're probably going to be putting state-of-the-art equipment back in the ground. So in other words, you can begin to calculate, we're just in the early phases of this, but you're just, we're going to be able to calculate, start calculating the uh, collateral costs that were not part of the original budget or part of the original expectations. And they're nowhere near reaching Bertha yet. They're about two-thirds or three-quarters of the way in their dig. But as they dig, the more they dig, the water pressures increase, the more they're going to have to pump. It's like waterlogged sand. If you pump all the water out, it's going to continue to settle. No one could plausibly claim that there's not going to be more settlement. That's just uh, untenable. Before I left KOW, I did a story on, uh, on a building owner right at the end of, of uh, Jackson here. No, at the end of Yesler, that, that triangle building that's got the uh, Al Boccolino, is that the name of that restaurant? And he, said, he took me outside and he said, look at these cracks. And this was back in April. He said, look at these cracks. I have the pictures. They were not here two months ago. They were not here four months ago. This is happening. Well, DOT was saying, you know, we don't think so. And if so, well, he should go through the process and, and file. And he was, he was upset. And I think that this is a real issue because... In this project, so many people are relying upon the technical assurances from WashDOT. And really what this project ought to have is an independent source of technical expertise to check that. Uh, because some of the things that are being said are being presented or spun or who knows what. 
Uh, but I think you, you need to have that independent check on these things because they're complicated, and even the experts don't agree on some of these things. So let me ask you about some of these technical aspects of this. Let's go into the weeds or down into the tunnel a little bit on this. Let's go into the substrate. Um, they knew, looking into the soil, they knew what kind of soil they had. So what was the um, technical assurances that they felt they also had in order to proceed with this kind of soil? Well, this is interesting. I looked uh, the other day again at the, some of the RFP documents, and part of it is also the basis of this contract. By using a design-build contract, the ultimate responsibility for assurances on some of this stuff were placed on the design-build contractor. So in some sense, they knew through their test drilling and so forth, they have a profile, and then they do the classic thing in these contracts where they say contractor to verify, contractor to assure, contractor to... The, the accuracy of the soil conditions are all on the contractor. And they also say, actually, there's actually a small paragraph, one sentence long, that says the contractor is also responsible for the type of bearing and in the machine and so forth. So part of it was, you know, it's a little, in my view, it's a little bit of ostrich behavior. It's really super complicated. They probably felt they needed to have something that didn't seem so complicated. I'm putting words in their mouth here. And as a consequence, the design-build contract helped remove some of the complexity by saying our expert contractor over here is going to sort all this stuff out. So you have this sort of diffusion of the responsibility for assuring the technical details. And, you know, classically, and this particular contract, or some of the people in this particular contractor group have this uh, experience in their past where they do the project and then they sue in court for 25 years. You know, the Los Angeles Metro subway lawsuits took decades. I think they they were solved a year or so ago. Well, you were telling, when does a project become a boondoggle? So you were telling me about Amsterdam and what they're facing. And of course, when this was all being debated, it, the, the, uh, the poster child was the big dig in Boston. So what had happened in Amsterdam and what, what did they confront and where are they now? Well, that's an interesting project because they had sandy, wet soil, of course. I think the whole country is sandy and wet. <laughs> but, uh, and, uh, and they were digging underneath lots of about 400-year-old buildings. One night in the middle of the night, all of a sudden, a 400-year-old building cracked apart and tipped, and everybody sleeping in it had to be roused out of it, and they've never been able to move back into their houses. And as a consequence, what they had to do in Amsterdam was they had to invent a new kind of tunneling they actually developed a technology where they froze the ground ahead of the machine so they're always digging through a sandy ice cube so that things didn't move while they were digging. Now that project went years and years and years. It's not done yet. It's kind of the laughingstock of Amsterdam. By the way, the city of Amsterdam was on the hook for all these cost overruns, so it also created a huge thing. This thing went from single-digit billions to $17, 18000000000 billion, something like that, and it's still not done. And uh, so you, these things can get really big, and you have to recognize the complexity up front, and you have to be realistic about it. That totally changes the political calculation, and I think some of these people who are talking about, you know, I told you so now, nobody's saying that, now is the time to think about those things again. There are people who are saying, do we want to keep pour good money after bad? We are in a city that's right now tearing down the R.H. Thompson uh, free, uh, freeway to nowhere. We are sitting not too far from where we blew up the kingdom because it wasn't adequate, even though we hadn't paid for it. So we are a city that is willing to uh, <laughs> eat the cost sometimes. Oh, and and I, didn't, I didn't take the monorail we don't have to get to our interview today. <laughs> there you go, because it was so expensive, so in part. So, you know, let's, let's talk a little bit about the political 
co calculations, the political cost on this. Who's around that's still, and Governor Gregoire's gone, Greg Nichols is, is gone, I mean, they're, they're still alive, and yeah. people will call on them, but, uh, and Mike McGinn is not the mayor anymore, Ron Sims. Uh, Ron Sims. So, who's going to take the heat for this? City Council members Burgess and Rasmussen? Yes, uh, well, and the City Council, which uh, supported overwhelmingly the tunnel, with only one dissident, uh, Mike uh, O'Brien, and, uh, and the, the current mayor, uh, Ed Murray, and not because he's mayor, but because he was the guy who sponsored the legislation that, that got the thing passed. He's a proponent of the tunnel. He's mayor of the city during the, you know, this key phase of its implementation, and fairly or unfairly, I mean, it's, he's a, he owns the tunnel now. And, uh, uh, and I, I think whoever was mayor of Seattle uh, was in some sense going to own the tunnel. Uh, but he especially owns it because of the role. And, of course, that was one of the bones of contention between Mike McGinn and Ed Murray was the provision of who pays for cost overruns, uh, whether the citizens of Seattle will pay for those or will the state pay for those. And that's unresolved. Uh, uh, the proponents of that provision, such as uh, Ed Murray and others, have argued that, well, it's not enforceable anyway. So we got it through the legislature, but just let them, let them try and get, you know. And, of course, now you've got, you know, insurance companies and, and uh, uh, you know, the contractor and other entities to make it very complex uh, and, and finger-pointing. If you look at the history of all boondoggles, one, one reason they occur is that the politics of over-optimism trump negativity. People always are biased toward a yes when it comes to these sort of uh, big visions. Um, secondly, they're politically safe because e e no matter wh what happens, once you ram it through, you're never in office when the when the bill comes due. And so, you know, is somebody going to, you know, beat up on, you know? And the other thing is that they're often they often are done with good intention. They often are undertaken because people really think that that infrastructure is going to prove uh, out. If you look at the history of Seattle, I mean, we have a history of boondoggles, but we also have a history of huge infrastructure projects that cost tons of money, lasted years, that have created the city that we just take for granted now. We have a ship canal. We connected Lake Washington, Lake Union, and Puget Sound. Huge, huge to the economy of this uh, city. Most of the ground that we're sitting on right now, landfill, we filled in vast areas of wetland. We created the waterfront as a, as a viable port. So we built tunnels, we terraformed the city, we washed away many of the hills. Uh, you know, we, we have a track record of success, and we also have a track record of both failure and skepticism about big projects. I'd be really interested to get in the minds of the politicians who are supporting this project who are still here and hear what risk or calculations are going through their mind right now because there is the political risk of the boondoggle on your watch. There's uh, the political, the, there's an actual political risk about uh, the viaduct itself. You know, when the, the viaduct in California went down, it took 42 people with it. And there's the technical risk of you're battling the laws of physics now. It's not like you can will a situation to make it doable. You're against the laws of physics with water pressure, the laws of physics with the viaduct sinking, the torsion as it twists as it sinks. 
they've got to have a really sort of internal dialogue that is intense right now. Well, are you going to are you going to close the viaduct early in the name of safety and piss off all of West Seattle? Are you going to instead wait until something unspeakable happens and then have people coming at you saying we knew this risk was here all along and you did nothing? Are you going to just keep signing che- blank checks on the project? I can't imagine it's a comfortable spot for them to be in, but somebody one might hope ought to be able to come together and say real-world options are X, Y, and Z, just FYI. I just wanted to add some uh, to, to the point there that some of the reasons to uh, take down the viaduct are, were incredibly valid. I mean, the, it is a barrier. I mean, Paul Theory, the sort of father of modern architecture, said in 1946, don't build the viaduct, build a tunnel. Uh, he, you know, he, he wasn't listened to. Um, part of the problem is that one day a large earthquake is going to happen. The Seattle Fault runs right through this area, right, right through South Seattle. There are also other faults that have yet to be mapped that are right, literally right under Pioneer Square and downtown. And they don't even know the, you know the extent of that network. So you're confronted with a problem where after the Nisqually quake, you knew that the viaduct was weakened. You knew that it needed to be either shored up or replaced that it was built, also built on, on unstable soil that can liquefy and whatnot in an earthquake. And uh, yet your chance of that happening might be only a few percentage points, you know, because you're saying, well, the big one's going to hit us sometime in the next 500 years or 200 years. Well, that's really outside the kind of political calculation. So you make a decision to deal with something that might be a two or three hundred year problem, you're, by definition, you're, you're making a decision that's not going to be politically viable or that's going to be politically questioned because it may never happen. And in some ways, the tunnel project requires the viaduct to still be in operation politically, some people would argue. Because if for some reason the, you have to have to close down the viaduct, there's a large body of knowledge and a lot of people that will argue adaptation will occur and suddenly this liquid thing called traffic will move around and the city will cope because there's probably contingency plans for what to do if you have to close the viaduct. And suddenly you're left with the tunnel project ongoing with a vaporized rationale because the problems that were always talked about hadn't emerged. A lot of people would say that's a real issue. So there's hesitancy to take the steps on the viaduct because that's a useful player in this political drama. Well, and there are people who have said all along that that's, those are viable questions to raise because of, the, because of the way traffic does flow. I mean, it's funny you're saying that because we're sitting in a building that was damaged by the earthquake across the street from one that semi-collapsed and has now been retrofitted with all those beams that go through the, the windows. And, of course, there's the building over there that still has the crack in it from the earthquake. So it is a real issue that they have to calculate. Um, and they are gambling every minute, right? We are gambling. So that idea of having the, uh, an honest conversation is... All right, so if you're saying maybe birthday isn't toast, we need to have that. We're not getting that. You were saying we're not getting that in, in part from DOT or the tunnel partners. The information they give us is still vague. Is that right? It is uh, well scrubbed and oversimplified in all respects. All the information coming out of there is not presenting the complexity of the situation. You can be sure in the conference rooms where the private meetings are happening with the contractors, those conversations are altogether different 
than the ones they're having with us when the microphones and cameras come out. Well, I don't know if I can be sure of that. I mean, when, I, when you look at some of the way information is disseminated, I don't know if they did have honest questions or if they did what you said, that magical thinking that said, uh, they're going to deal with that. No, they're going to deal with that. I mean, I, do you think we get that? Do we get the honest conversation? If we don't get the, if we don't get the, the viaduct project going away, do we get that honest conversation among Mike O'Brien and Tim Burgess? It's hard to have the honest conversation because now there's so much liability. (laughs) You know, that is the inhibitor to a lot of honest conversation. And so the state takes a position which says, look, we bought something. We bought a finished tunnel. We bought it from you, the contractor. Your job is to deliver it to us. And uh, we've set the price and that's what you pay. You know, so they're the customer who says, it's all on you. That's design build. And we told you. Yeah, right. But those contracts didn't, of course, cover everything. And one thing they, they, you know, while people might have anticipated problems, they didn't anticipate necessarily having to drill a vertical 120-foot shaft in this place, in these conditions, which have created new problems, which are exacerbating the problems that they feared that just the tunneling itself, successful tunneling, would cause. So the, the difficulty with having the honest conversation is everybody's got a position to defend. Um, for example, I think you could argue that the vote uh, in 2011 was an endorsement of the tunnel, and therefore Seattleites knowing that the legislature had given us the funds contingent on us paying the cost differential, um, I, you know, I think you can argue that Seattle should pay for the cost overruns. Um, that we have a moral obligation to do that, and that regardless of what this le- uh, whether that provision is enforceable legally or not, we know what the intention of the legislature was. What they were saying was, the state has a certain amount of money for a project like this. If you want flub dubs that make it more expensive, that's on you. Uh, there's no ambiguity about that. But will Seattle consider <coughs> consider paying for it? No, that would be. Political death. Whether it shuts it down, of course, is another question. But surely another referendum could be on the ballot and it could, uh, taxpayers could do X, Y, or Z, I imagine. Well, one place that might show up is that uh, the state has to get a new transportation plan together. It's going to go before the voters. And a, a lot of discussion in Olympia that has contributed, they think, to the gridlock on that transportation plan, which has not been forthcoming. Part of it's financing, part of it is priorities, part of it is a growing public skepticism about WashDOT's ability to manage big projects. And that, that new transportation plan includes, I think, $1.5 billion for completing the 520 project. You know, there are a lot of other big projects in there. And people, I think a lot of people are saying, eh, can we get some assurance that this thing would be run better? You know, the, the light rail across I-90 turns out to be an enormous technical challenge. That's a, that's not nearly so easy as one might think, and that's I think in that in the in the plan, or right. or maybe that's sound transit table. I'm not sure which. No, some I think th- what is in the what is in the proposal is um, the uh, a, approval to ask the voters for money for sound transit three. So, you know, the the willingness of people to put money into these projects, and so you wonder if some kind of reform might be requested. Because we also have the debacle with the ferries and the fact that 
I don't know if you've been over to Eagle Harbor. I don't know how many ferries you can jam into the uh, repair shop at one time, but the place looks like, you know, a fleet is in there. And we still have a 520 bridge that doesn't have a, a, a route once it gets over into the into the Seattle side of things. Half they, a 520 bridge. What's that? Half a 520 yeah. bridge. Yeah, we have half of one. What does political leadership look like at this on this deal to you guys? On which? The tunnel. Like, what would political well, leadership look like in this situation? Well, in the best of all worlds, for me, it would look like what you were talking about. The, where's the honest conversation for the public? Where, where do we get to hear what actually is being said behind closed doors? And I understand what you say about liability. That's a big deal. But, I mean, there's a, there's a big problem here because, like you say, 520, I-90... This, this getting around this city, these are all real things that people, you know, bread and butter stuff that politicians are supposed to take care of. And we look at that. I, I have, a, I have a, a second question. But do you have an answer on political leadership? Well, I was just going to say, what does it look like? And I can't, I, you know, overall, I think that Murray ought to be taking a, a very uh, independent position as the advocate for the city. And we, we know that he is an advocate for the city, but I was disappointed in some of his comments about uh, the potential damage to Pioneer Square. He seemed to deflect it. Uh, Somebody was asking about the crack in King Street, and he was sort of like, well, you know, what the property owners ought to worry about is the earthquake. Yeah, but that's not what's causing the problems right now. In fact, it's exacerbating problems that an earthquake might pose. But I think there's, you know, I'd like to hear somebody say the... Pioneer Square is our first downtown. It's our premier historic district. Um, This place is going to be made whole, period. doesn't matter who pays, you know. I mean, it matters, but, you know, the state, the contractor, the insurance companies, we're not going to let it suffer. I, I think there needs to be some kind of stronger advocacy for um, this, this thing not being the uh, damaging and inconvenient and somebody advocating for that. And I, I'm not hearing that yet. I'm not hearing the, that in those strong terms. That was something I thought Mike McGinn did well. In You might disagree with his position on the tunnel, but he made it very clear that Seattle was not going to be on the hook for those cost overruns if he could help it. That's an important shift from campaigning for off, a leadership office like mayor to actually getting into it. Is that adjustment from the positions you hold to being the mayor of everybody in the city and, and change, m- moving those positions towards that kind of thing once you're in office. So this is the elephant in the room, by the way, this Crosscut Media Program. I'm Steve Scher, Matt Fixie Verkirk. He writes occasionally for Crosscut, and he's a, he's a tunnel rat. I'm calling you a tunnel rat now, man. And that uh, Knut Bergen Mossback at Crosscut is the tunnel toast. Okay, so maybe it's not toast, but uh, it's uh, sat in the toaster a while, and now it's getting crisp. I have a, I have a question about sort of a last question about what people have been saying and in the media. So I've been listening to Dory Monson. I, I hear in front of me is a, is a, uh, something from The Stranger that uh, Dominic Holden wrote. And, but he's, he quotes this last thing. In, in 2002, in the Journal of the American Planning Association, titled Underestimating Costs in Public Works Projects, Error or Lie, the researchers, this is their sentence, cost underestimation cannot be explained by error and seems to be best explained by strategic misrepresentation, i.e. 
lying. They use deception and lying as tactics and power struggles aimed at getting projects started, making a profit, appear to best explain why the costs are highly and systematically underestimated in transportation infrastructure. Did we get the shaft in, in this project? Sounds like we did. I think this project is not different from other projects of that kind. And whether you call that an optimism bias or whether you call it deceit, <clears throat> it seems to be uh, very consistent. And I think part of it is that uh, you know politicians look at these things incrementally. They know that once you dig a hole, you've got to fill it. You know, and that's whether you're building a convention center or whether you're building a world's fair or whether you're building a tunnel. And uh, so the, the important thing is to say whatever you need to say to get that hole dug, and then, then it's a different deal. Then you're stuck. Well, I remember those conversations all through that decade on, on, on interview after interview, and that's exactly what it felt like. People were saying things in order to get it done and not having the honest conversation. Sure, I think that's absolutely right. We didn't get anything near the level of complexity or detail that would have properly informed the conversation about this product or this project. And unfortunately, as those authors study, they also did a study in a, a journal in Berkeley called Deception and Delusion in Mega Projects, and they actually quantified this around the world. It's, and, and it's nothing to do with the will of the people or their intent. It's the timelines of the decision makers are often just quite different than the timelines of the project. So they're only ever really considering and deciding the first chunk of the project. And uh, it takes a completely different conversation with full information to make the whole decision up front. Otherwise, you're on a roller coaster and you're just going to ride it out one way or another. And I think that's where we are. I heard somebody uh, say this is like the Whoops Project. And that's why we should pull the plug. Because like the Whoops Project, we're on a roller coaster that we don't know if it even has a, a safety and a safe ending. You think it's like Whoops? The, which was the nuclear power project. We were going to build all these power plants around the state, and eventually uh, people said, this is too expensive. Yeah, <clears throat> I'm not sure. No, I, I guess I don't think it's sort of on the scale of whoops. I don't think there's a bond default in the offing and that kind of thing. And I, 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 it, people know from the whoops experience that's something you do everything possible to avoid. This is a more discreet, this is like building one one plant, not a whole series of them all over the place. Um, and obviously, you know, the results could be bad if there were an earthquake, but hardly catastrophic on, as on the level of a nuclear plant meltdown. So I understand why people, uh, you know, why people see that. But I, I, you know, I think if you dig into it, that's probably not a fair analogy. But is it fair to say that we're going to be paying a whole lot more for this? Uh, or somebody, some group of people are going to be paying a whole lot more for this project than they intended. And, you know, the other question, while I think, you know, as Matt does, that technologically it's feasible to solve the problem, they still don't know what the problem is. And they still don't know how to, whether they can solve it. They don't know why the machine is stuck. Until they take, take it apart and look at it, they don't know if the fix they have for it is the correct fix and whether it will proceed or whether this is a problem that will happen every thousand feet. And there's argument in the tunnel industry also, or there has been, about whether the design of this particular machine is even the proper one for these conditions. It's a pity we're in the spot we're in. Uh, it, it could have well been foreseen. And we could have had a much better approach to this. So we're going to have a whole lot of surprises going forward. The one thing we won't have going forward, no matter who asserts it, 
is certainty. You know what, I think the analogy isn't the roller coaster. It's the, uh, the funhouse tunnel where you go into the tunnel and it's dark and you don't know where you're going to come out or what's going to happen inside. I always hated that thing. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, and I think we know why we hated it. Uh, the elephant in the room is Bertha Toast. Well, maybe not. For Crosscut, I'm Steve Scher.